I'll tell you what, when I am going on a trip, I like to find out where I'm going ahead of time. By the way, we're in Revelation 21, if you want to turn there. I like to know a little something about the place I'm going. And the internet's a big help with this. If I'm going on a ministry conference out of town or if I'm going on vacation with my family, I'll always get online and find out what is the hotel like? What are the rooms like? They usually have pictures. You can take a little visual tour, virtual tour of the room. Um, What size bed are we going to be sleeping in? Do do they have breakfast at the hotel? Is it good breakfast or am I going to need to find a Waffle House or something around the the neighborhood? Uh, Is there a workout place there? Am I going to have time to work out? What is there good to do in town? What are the good places to eat? I want to find all these things out. What's the weather like? What kind of clothes do I need to bring? Carrie and Kaylee, uh, years ago, went to Disney World. Before they went, they bought a book about Disney World so they could find out what are the tips, what are the, what are the inside, what's the inside knowledge so we can not stand in line, so we can have the most fun. And they came back and said, that was the best thing we ever did. We had a great time because we knew going in what to expect. I think that makes sense to a lot of us. And yet, when it comes to the place we're going to spend eternity, as opposed to a couple of days, most Christians have almost no knowledge of it and have done almost no research about it. That doesn't make any sense to, to me, does it to you? You ask Christians, well, what, what, what happens after you die? What is, what is heaven like? And they'll say, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm assuming it's a better place. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't, that doesn't hold up. We should be people filled with hope that the world can't take away. Hope that not even even the death of a loved one can diminish. Not Not even our own approaching death can diminish. Hope. And we are hope impoverished as American Christians. We put our hopes in the wrong things. Our hopes are in things like, well, someday I'm going to get married and I'm going to be blissfully happy. Or someday I'm going to have kids and those kids are going to grow up and worship the ground I walk on. Or someday I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get rich and then I'll be able to afford all this stuff that I've always wanted. Or someday I'm going to get to retire and finally have some fun in life. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But none of those things really deliver. If you're putting your hope in any of those things, You may not get there, and even if you do get there, you're going to find out this wasn't as great as I thought it was going to be, and you'll be devastated. There is one hope, one hope that doesn't disappoint, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's take a tour of our future home, and I hope that by the end of this sermon, by the end of this message, you're going to say, okay, amen, come Lord Jesus. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, this is some of those beautiful language that's ever been written, and I get the impression this is you're, you're seeing the the very apex of the skill of John the Apostle as a writer. He's probably taxing his own brain to come up with descriptions for what he's witnessing, 
And some of the best, some of the most exciting hymns and, and praise choruses that have ever been written have been written based on these words. This is exciting stuff. The question I want to start out with, and we're going to get to some answers later, but the question I want you to wrestle with is, when John describes the New Jerusalem, is he talking about a literal city? Are we to take his descriptions literally, or is this a metaphor for other things? Let me be clear about something. The Bible says very clearly all through the scriptures in in various different places that there will be a new earth, okay? When we talk about heaven, when I talk about heaven this morning, I'm not talking about the place we go when we die if we know Jesus. That place is wonderful. Jesus called it paradise. And, And if your loved ones are there now, they're in a good place. They're in a place where Jesus is and sin is not, so we know it's good. But that's not where we spend eternity, We spend eternity, the Bible is very clear, on a new earth, a renewed planet earth. The good news about that is it's not as though God made a world and then we messed it up and he said, okay, I'm throwing that away. No, he said, I made a world, you messed it up. I'll show you what I can do. I'm going to renew the whole thing and it's going to be better than it ever was before. And it's going to be filled with redeemed people who will know me personally. That's the story. That's the way the story of God ends. But the question I have is, when he talks about this city, New Jerusalem, is he talking about a literal city or is he talking about a metaphor? Now, let me give you the opposing arguments real quickly. On the side of it being a literal city, Jesus, the night before he died, John 14, he's talking to his disciples. He says, I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you and then I'll come again and I'll bring you to where I am. So maybe he was saying, I'm building a city in the heavens, and someday when I return to earth, that city is going to come down to earth, and that's where we're going to live. That's going to be the capital city of the new earth. And if you take it that way, it's exciting to think about, but later on we're going to get into some of the physical descriptions of the city, and you're going to think, wow, I can't even picture that. Now, on the side of this being symbolic, most all of Revelation is written in a style called apocalyptic. It's an apocalyptic book. That was a very popular genre at the time this was written. Uh, it's the only book of the Bible written that way. It's basically a way of saying the truth in coded language so it doesn't get you in trouble. Many of the things we've read already, I, I've already tried to argue, we don't take them literally. An example, a couple weeks ago, we looked at this woman riding a beast in, in Revelation 17 and 18, and they call her Babylon. And I, I said then, it's not a literal woman, it represents something, it's not even Babylon, because the nation of Babylon didn't even exist by the time John wrote this. I said at the time, it refers to the way things are in this world, with all the violence, with all the hatred, with all the greed, with all the racism, with all the the disregard for human life and disregard for God's standards. It's the way things are now. And I said, Babylon has to be destroyed so that God can implant the new Jerusalem on earth. What I was saying was the way things are is going away. God is creating a new kingdom where the way things he wants them to be will reign and nothing else. By the way, notice that the city is called the bride Actually, in verse 9, it says it even more specifically. It says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Some of you know this. Everywhere else in the New Testament, that term is used, the bride, the wife of the lamb. It's referring to the church. It's referring to God's people. You and me, we're the bride of Christ. It's a little hard for us guys to get excited about, but that is the way God refers to us in his word. And so what I think this is saying, and I'm making an argument that, this, that the New Jerusalem is metaphorical. I think the New Jerusalem represents the people of God who will reign alongside Jesus on the earth. 
and how in that world it will be totally different than Babylon, the way things were. It will be a completely different world where righteousness and love and grace reign. Now, this much is true. We will have real bodies. 1 Corinthians 15 says so. We're going to have resurrected bodies that will be perfect, flawless. I think we'll still look like ourselves because the disciples uh, after Easter recognized Jesus. He still looked like Him. We will still look like ourselves, but our bodies will be impervious, imperishable, glorious. We'll have abilities we didn't previously have. But I want to get back to the idea of if you take this literally, because we're not going to read these passages, but... It gives a physical description of the New Jerusalem. And if you take it as a literal city, I want to describe what the city is like. Taken literally, this city would have walls around it that are 200 feet thick. I said that correctly. He didn't say 200 feet high. 200 feet thick, made of jasper. They will be decorated with precious gemstones, including the 12 stones that, were, that decorated the, the breastplate of the Jewish high priest. The the gates, each of the 12 gates, are made of a single pearl each. Imagine the size of the oyster that made the pearl that size. The streets are literally made of gold, although they're also called transparent streets, crystal, as clear as glass. I don't know how gold can be transparent. Maybe in the New Jerusalem that's true, uh, or maybe it's symbolic of something else. Here's the most mind-blowing part. John describes the city as being 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, and 1,400 miles high. That means the, the New Jerusalem, if this is a literal city, is 2 million square miles of real estate, which is bigger than most nations of the earth today. And the fact that it's 1,400 miles high, no one really knows what that means. If it's to be taken literally, it's, it either means that these are skyscrapers that are like way larger than anything we can build today, or it means it's like a massive condominium with 600,000 levels of living space. Well, if this is literally true, we'll find out. But here's another argument in favor of it not being literal. All the numbers in those measurements are divisible by 12. And 12, of course, is the number of the the apostles, the number of the tribes of Israel. And so I think it's referring to something symbolic. But you can decide. You can make your own decision, and we'll find out who's right when Jesus gets back, won't we? I'm not putting any money on it. I'm just saying. Now let's go on, because here comes the exciting part. Chapter 21, verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now skip to verse 3 in the next chapter, chapter 22. No longer will there be any curse. Now quick, time out. What does that mean? No longer will there be any curse. The curse refers to what happened to the world when human beings first sinned. The world was perfect. God made a world in which we could commune with each other and with Him without any interruption or interference. And then we sinned and everything was warped and destroyed. The curse is going away. We're going back to a world the way it was originally intended to be. Verse 3, 
No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Sound good? All right, let's get into some specifics. What do we know for sure? Now, we could spend a long time on this. I'm going to try to sum this up in a few minutes. A few things we know for sure. Number one, we will have unhindered access to God. Have you ever, when you're reading the Bible or in Sunday school or or life group or if you're in a Bible study of some kind, have you ever thought to yourself, man, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have walked by Jesus. I wish I could have heard his voice. I wish I could have listened to him talk and heard his stories and wish I could have seen those miracles he performed. You'll have that chance. You have no reason to envy the apostles. You will, you will get to spend way more time with Jesus than they ever did back in the first century. If you've ever thought to yourself, I love the Holy Spirit and when he wells up within me in, in worship or when I'm reading the Bible and he makes it clear to me or when he guides me, I just wish that was all the time. Most of the time I don't hear his voice. Most of the time I'm just too distracted If you've ever wanted the Holy Spirit's presence to be abundantly clear to you all the time, that's going to be your reality. If you've ever thought to yourself, I wish I could see God. I wish I could kneel before Him and just thank Him personally for what He's done for me. I wish I could ask Him these difficult questions I have and I really wish I knew the answer to. You'll have that chance. We will have unhindered access to God. And by the way, there's this persistent myth that heaven is going to be boring Let me disabuse you of that notion. Think about whatever it is on this earth that you find the most fascinating, the most fun, the most exciting, the most breathtaking and thrilling and heart-rending. And you realize God made that, right? I mean, human beings didn't make that stuff. It's not like we came up with fun. God made it. I'm on the side of the one who invented laughter and the one who invented food that tastes good. Okay? God didn't create McDonald's. God made food that tastes good, okay? (laughs) Sorry, McDonald's. Um, I loved you when I was a kid, but um, God is the one who created all good things. There is no possible way He could be boring. And so being in His presence all the time is going to be endlessly fascinating, endlessly stimulating, endlessly exciting. That's going to be our reality. We will have unhindered access to God. Secondly, sin and its effects will not be there. You know what the effects of sin are? Death, destruction, pain, separation between human beings, rivalry, everything bad issued from sin. And that's all going to be gone and done with. Isaiah 11 is a great chapter to read alongside these two. If you want to later on, do some supplemental reading. That will excite you. Isaiah 65 says the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Think of that picture. Think about a lion who's just as majestic as he is now, but he's gentle enough that you and I could pet him. I mean, that's the world that that Isaiah foresaw hundreds of years before uh, Jesus. A world where sin and its effects are gone. And if I can just speak personally to you right now, we've lost some significant people in our church recently, just this week. 
And as a pastor, one of the, one of the most special things I get to do is officiate a funeral. And when someone comes to me and says, I want you to, I want you to do my dad's funeral, my, my mom's funeral, my wife, my child, that's a great honor for me to get to sum up someone's life in a few words, to get to comfort people who are grieving with the Word of God. That, there's nothing more important I get to do. And yet, at the same time, I'm tired of grief. I'm tired of burying good people. I'm tired of of watching really good people get their hearts torn out as they get separated from people they love. And there's nothing that the violence of that that wound cannot be healed. And that grief never goes away. Human grief is like losing a limb. You can learn to function without it. You can live a long and full life without it, but you always know, I don't have that limb. And I'm tired of that. It's not God's fault. He didn't create a world that was that way. I look forward to a world where I see those people again and they're in good shape. I look forward to a world where I never stand at a graveside again or visit someone in the hospital again or hear so-and-so just went on hospice care again where aging doesn't exist and disease is just a distant memory. I look forward to those things. Does that sound good to you? Number three, there will be worship. There will be worship. We know there will be worship in the new earth. It's all through the Scriptures, but especially Revelation. I don't know if you've noticed this or not in our study of this book, but aside from Psalms, which is itself a hymn, a hymn book, Revelation is the most musical book of the entire Bible. Outside of Psalms, there's more songs in Revelation. There's more instances of people singing. I got news for you. If you don't enjoy singing praise to God you may not want to go to heaven. And, and I'm being funny, but I'm being a, kind of serious too because you know, that's one reason why people say, oh, how can God let, not let everyone into heaven? Well, there's some people who just don't want to be there. If, you don't, if, if getting to know God forever and, and praise His name forever doesn't sound good to you, maybe heaven's not for you. The new earth is going to be a place where we praise the name of, of Jesus. And, and, and I want to comfort you if you say, wait a second, I'm, I know I'm saved. I just, I just feel goofy when I sing, and I've got a weird voice, and I feel self-conscious. That's not going to be a problem in that place. First of all, your voice won't be goofy anymore. But second of all, you won't care what others think. You'll just sing because you'll be in the presence of one who makes your heart sing. But worship is not just singing. I want you to understand this. Worship can be anything we do if we do it for the audience of God, and in heaven we will. Remember when you were a kid and you would, have, you would be in a school play or you would be, you'd have a piano recital or you'd be playing in a baseball game and your parents would come and you'd look up into the stands and you'd see them and you'd be so happy because they're there? This is a true story. I mean, the whole, all my growing up years, that was true of me. Even when I was a varsity football player during timeouts, I'd look up into the stands at least once every game and I'd find my mom and I'd wave to her and she'd wave back. Nobody ever made fun of me for that because I think they were all like, yeah, yeah, we get it. Because it was important having your mom and dad there. And you, you did what you did because you wanted to make them proud. When we do what we do to make God proud and to bring pleasure to Him, to bring a smile to His face, whatever we're doing when we do that is worship. On the new earth, everything we do will be an act of worship. Everything we do will be doing it with this heart that says, you seeing this, Dad? You watching this? 
And we'll know He is, and He's pleased with us. There will be worship there. There will also, number four, there will also be celebration, reward, and rest. Celebration. Now, I want to tell you some good news. Every time Jesus talks about heaven, he describes it as a wedding feast. A wedding feast. First of all, the word feast, I mean, that's a good word right there. You know, it's, it's almost noon, our tummies are rumbling, feasting sounds good, and yes, I think we will literally eat on the new earth and it's going to be good, but a wedding feast, the reason Jesus used that metaphor is for a rural Jew, who was what Jesus was, there was no better time than when someone in the village got married. Every time Jesus was growing up, every time someone in Nazareth got married, what happened was Joseph would come home and say, okay, we're knocking off early today because there's a wedding. In fact, we won't have to do any work for the next couple of days because there's going to be a feast. And Jesus grew up watching this. Every time there was a wedding, the, the dad of the family would bring out the best, the best, you know, the fatted calf, the best of the food, the best of the wine. They would, whatever the, your best joke was, you'd bring it because people would want to laugh and someone would have music and they would sing and they would dance and they would shout and they would rejoice. And it was that one time a year when there were no burdens. And aren't you glad that's how Jesus describes heaven? Let, let's be honest. Aren't you glad he didn't say heaven is like a never-ending church service? We can be honest. I mean, God's watching. He knows. I love church, but an hour of this is enough. Jesus said it's like a wedding feast. It's like a celebration that never ends. By the way, one of the things Jesus' enemies accused him of was being a drunkard and a glutton. We know that it was a false accusation because drunkenness and gluttony are sins, and Jesus was without sin. So why did they call him that? Here's my theory. It's not, not original with me, but this is what I believe. They called him that because they thought to themselves, how can he be holy? He enjoys life too much. Because they were under the delusion that if you are close to God and if you're a holy person, you should be angry and bitter and hateful and judgmental like they were, like a lot of religious people are today, if we can be honest. But Jesus wasn't like that. He went around joyful. The troubles of life rolled off his shoulders. He loved people. He enjoyed people. Aren't you glad that's who we're going to be spending eternity with? Not, not, not the old woman with the tight bun on the back of her head who used to frown at you every time you smiled in church. It's Jesus. Not the, the fat, red-faced preacher either. Jesus. That's, that's the one who's going to be in charge. There will be celebration. There will also be reward. The rewards, according to Scripture, will vary. This is going to bother some of you. We're not all going to be equal in the new earth. We're going to be rewarded differently. Parable of the Minas is one example. You look up that parable, it, it clearly says some people get greater rewards than others. There are many other indications. By the way, that doesn't, that doesn't contradict grace. Nobody who is on the new earth besides Jesus will, will be there without grace. None, nobody will have earned their way there. It's all by grace. But we will also be rewarded differently once we're there. And even if I'm the lowest ranked person on the new earth, I'll still be so excited to be there. But here's the thing. We don't know what those rewards are. The, the Bible never tells us. I don't think they're going to be literal mansions and literal cars and jewelry and promotions and money. I, I think it's going to be something different. But I also believe that because there's no envy or jealousy or rivalry there, that we won't look around and say, man, why did he get something I didn't? Instead, we'll rejoice and we'll say, hallelujah. God saw the life she lived. 
And she did live a more sacrificial life than I did. I saw her love more people than I did. It's good that she gets rewarded. There will be celebration, there will be reward, and there will also be rest. One of my favorite promises in Scripture is when Jesus in the book of John says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Didn't sound good to me when I was a kid, but it does now. You know how you know how you know you're an adult? Because rest sounds good. You know how you know you're an adult? Because if if you're headed to a weekend and you've got nothing planned, that's like your dream weekend. Monday morning, people say, well, what did you do that weekend? You're like, I didn't do nothing. It was great. You know you're an adult because if someone calls and, and cancels an appointment, you're like, woohoo. When you were a kid, if your friend was going to come over and play and they had to cancel because they had a sore throat, you'd be devastated. But now someone calls and says, hey, I, I can't make it today. You're like, hallelujah, I got that hour back. That, that means you're an adult and you need some margin and we don't have any margin. By the way, if you have an appointment with this, me with this week, I want to keep the appointment. Don't take this the wrong way. We will have rest. We won't feel busy all the time. I knew a pastor who was a true pastor, a true shepherd. He retired after decades at the same church and then dropped out of a heart attack not long afterwards. His church, of course, grieved and mourned. And one of them said to me, it's so wrong. He served God so diligently and he never got to enjoy his retirement. And I didn't think about it at the time. I wish I would have. Later on, I thought back on that conversation and it occurred to me, no, he didn't miss anything. His retirement hasn't started yet. It starts when Jesus comes. You didn't lose anything. So let's get down to some real specifics. Will there be golf in heaven? (laughs) Will there be baseball in heaven? Will there be hunting and fishing? Will there be your favorite pet in heaven? People have these kinds of questions, and I want to give you a way to wrestle with those questions. It's called the biblical why not game, and I encourage you as a Christian to play the biblical why not game as often as possible, and here's the rules of the game. Whatever you enjoy on this earth, ask yourself, is there anything in the Bible that says specifically that won't be in heaven? If there's not, then ask yourself, is there anything about that activity that could possibly keep me from enjoying God's presence or, or, or be a, a problem for the new earth? If the answer to both of those questions is no, then here's what you can assume. either Number one, either that activity or that thing is going to be on the new earth, or number two, it's going to be replaced by something so much better, you'll look back on that activity and think, I don't know why I ever thought that was fun. So... God loves you. God is fully able to give you all good things. If there's something you enjoy, something that is necessary for your joy and happiness, God will provide it or he'll give you something even better. That's that's my money-back guarantee based on the the love and the kindness and the, the character of God. So here's a question. Will there be learning and discovery in heaven? Problem a lot of people have with the idea of heaven is they think, oh, well, I'm going to show up and I'm going to know all things and there's not going to be any difficulty and so there won't be any challenges and I'll be bored in about five minutes. But I don't think that's the case. I think we're going to have learning. We're going to have discovery because God knows that one of the main reasons knowledge is so exciting is the process of acquiring it. I don't think we're going to show up on the new earth already knowing all things. I think we're going to have unlimited time and unlimited capacity to learn. 
And so you'll be able to go anywhere you want and learn anything you want. Learn any new skill or brush up some old skill. You'll be able to meet people from different cultures. John talks about meeting people of every race, language, nation. Nations are mentioned in the passage we just read in chapter 21. So imagine being able to meet people from every period in human history. People from every culture on earth. All, if I'm right about this, speaking in East Texas English and saying y'all, I don't know that that's true, but I think we'll all speak the same language. I'll be, we'll be able to understand each other. Imagine being able to eat the best food from every ethnic group on earth. And if you're one of those people that's like, no, 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 I like what I like. Don't, don't make me eat this other stuff. You, you'll, you can have whatever you want to. I, be boring if you want to, but I'm, I'm going to try it all, okay? Imagine being able to hike Mount Kilimanjaro or sail the Mediterranean or listen to the finest Italian operas, read the best books that have ever been written, finally having time to do that. By the way, many of the greatest authors and songwriters ever are believers in Christ. They'll be on the new earth. They'll still be producing new works for us to enjoy and explore. I think it's quite possible, since we'll have some very fine scientific and engineering minds, that we'll be able to develop new technologies to allow us to explore outer space and go to places we've never even seen on telescopes. There's going to be a new heavens after all. There will be infinite numbers of worlds to explore. By the way, work is also mentioned in Revelation and elsewhere when it talks about the new earth. Work, that may worry you. You may say, but I thought I was done with work. I thought I was going to get rest. You know what's the best work? And by the way, if you're a young person, here's the best way to choose your career. Find something that you're really, really good at and you really, really enjoy and that helps other people. If you find something that meets all those three categories and it can make some kind of money, do it because then you'll be happy the rest of your life. That, that's, I believe that's going to be the work in the new earth. Everything we do will be something we love, something we're good at, something that blesses God and blesses others. It won't seem burdensome. It will be a joy. Will opportunities we lost in this life be fulfilled in the next? I say yes. I say yes. In fact, I want to give you some three, uh, three things you've probably never thought of, but I think are true. I believe that people, believers in this world, who've lost young children or who've suffered miscarriages, will get to raise those children on the new earth raise them up to adulthood. They'll get to do what they didn't get to do here. People who were childless in this life will get to raise babies who died with unbelieving parents. They'll finally get to be moms and dads. I believe that people in this world who are unable to walk, jump, leap, people with cerebral palsy, people who sustained paralytic injuries, people with various diseases that rendered them unable to walk, they're going to be the ones you don't want to foot race on the new earth. They're going to be the ones who are going to be the most daring, climbing the highest mountains and base jumping off the highest buildings. They're going to be the ones who dive into the deepest oceans. And I believe that people who gave up opportunities to travel in this life because they just couldn't afford it financially or they just didn't have the time, they were serving God, they were serving their families, they just, they just couldn't get to Paris or London or Machu Picchu or, or the North Pole or wherever your fantasy vacation is, you'll have that opportunity. We'll be on the new earth. 
And there won't be a limit of time or finances anymore. I base this on something Jesus said to Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, we've given up everything for you. You know what Peter was saying? When's the payoff, God? I've sacrificed my job, my family, my reputation in the community, and and it's just getting worse and worse. And Jesus said, trust me, Peter, whatever you give up for my kingdom, you're going to get back hundredfold. Whatever you lose in this life, you'll get it back with so much interest in the next. Every pain, every sacrifice you made will be worth it. There's a book I want to recommend to you to help you walk through the scriptures about about heaven, and that is a book called Heaven. And it's by a man named Randy Alcorn. If you're grieving a loss, if you're headed towards, you know, you look in the mirror and you've got a few more gray hairs than you thought, if uh, you're just curious about what the Bible says about heaven, I could not more highly recommend this book. So reach out and get it. So imagine yourself there. Imagine setting foot on the new earth for the very first time. Imagine a world of spectacular physical beauty without war, disease, poverty, divorce, or death. Imagine spending your days doing things that you love, being really, really good at them. Imagine knowing that everything you do brings a smile to your father's face. Imagine having unlimited time with the people you love and meeting people you've only dreamed of meeting, people you've read about or seen on TV. And then imagine that every once in a while there's this Mediterranean-hued guy who shows up. He's kind of ordinary looking, but those are the best days. Every day there's good, but when he comes around, it's the best day because he tells the best stories. He tells stories about things the Bible didn't have room to, to share He tells stories of things the Bible does share, but you hear them from his lips and it's even better than reading them with your eyes. He tells really, really good jokes. He laughs hard. He gives good hugs. And he's the only one on the new earth whose body isn't perfect. The only one. Everybody else is flawless from head to toe, but he's got these holes in his hands and his feet and one in his side and these scars on his forehead. And every time you see him and you see those scars and every time you shake his hand and you feel that hole in his hand or you wrap your arms around him and you feel that hole in his side, you, you realize, I didn't earn this. I, I'm here because of him. And that reminds you just how much you're loved. And that's why you'll never ever be able to take it for granted. Chapter 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Let me ask you something. If you're a believer in Christ, does your heart well up within you and just shout, Come, Lord Jesus. I hope it's today. Because if it doesn't, if it doesn't, ask the Lord to show you why. Am I too in love with the things of this world? Am I just not faithful enough? We need to be excited about this. This needs to be the the cry of our hearts. And if the reason why you're not excited about it is because you don't know that you're going to live on the new earth because only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life are there, then I've got great news for you. You can get that name written in that book today.